Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Millhouse Podcast. Today's guest is Jay Scott. Jay is a renowned hunting guide and world-class elk caller who has separated himself from all others with his Jay Scott Outdoors podcast, which covers his passion of hunting and fishing. On the show today, we'll cover a wide spectrum of elk hunting, calling, and the idiosyncrasies of being successful in the woods. We hope you enjoy the show. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Jay Scott, welcome to the Millhouse. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, as we get going here, I just want to make mention to the audience that uh, Jay's got the number one podcast in the hunting world with uh, 29 million downloads. Uh, you've been a f- professional hunting guide 20 years in Arizona, if yep. I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've killed personally two bulls over 400, one in the 390 class, and five clients with bulls over 400. His sponsors, uh, you're an ambassador to Ku. Uh, Kuyu, Go Hunt, Phone Scope, and Onyx Map. Yep. Jay Scott, you're one of the greats. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate you guys having me. This is going to be fun. With that, all that said, um, that's a pretty big uh, life that you've had in the hunting and, and fishing world, and we're three days uh, going into the season, the 2019 season. What are you seeing as a professional guide? What are you feeling right now, you know, just prior a, a season? Yeah, I mean, 2019 is an interesting year because we've had a huge winter across the Southwest. I mean, we're sitting here in Colorado and we had huge snowfalls here. Even in Arizona, where I live half the year, we've had unbelievable moisture for us. But interestingly, we were just talking before the podcast, uh, this summer has actually been a fairly dry summer. I mean, we're sitting here in August and, you know, it's kind of a dry it's been dry i mean we virtually had no rain up here in the aspen area and normally we would have afternoon showers and you know monsoon storms and such so going into the 19th season i'm optimistic uh especially in you know states like arizona new mexico utah uh for antler growth because of great winter moisture it seems like uh you know great winter moisture equates to good antlers and antler size bone density and everything else It'll be interesting to see how this dry summer is kind of playing into it. But as far as what am I feeling going into the 19th season, it's funny how when elk season is 
right around the corner. I'm just as fired up as I was 20 years ago. And I think that's one of those things that I love about our sport is, and until that goes away, I'm going to continue to do what I do because I love it. You know, I still get those um, feelings, you know, deep down where I just want to be in the elk woods. I want to hear my first elk bugle. And it's just an exciting time for sure. Do you remember the first time, the first elk you ever heard bugle? And when and where was that? Yeah, so my dad ran a ranch um, for about 18 years down by Ridgeway, Colorado, which is in southwestern Colorado. So for the listeners out there, uh, south of Montrose, Colorado in the San Juans. And I would have to say that's probably the first place that I heard an elk bugle. Uh, It's a phenomenal property, still is, uh, and lots of elk on it. And I just remember... Uh, a, a guy that worked for my dad at the ranch named Scott Hill, he's, a, he's the guy that introduced me and actually gave me my first elk call. And it was actually a used elk call. And he's like washed it off. And he's like, just try this, you know. And he's like, put it in your mouth and, you know, tried to tell me how to make sounds. And then we went and drive, drove around the ranch and um, found this big group of cows and calves. And they were just, yeah, 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 and I got to hear that for the first time. And then I heard him, he pulled out his diaphragm. We kind of snuck around and um, kind of got, you know, just perfect. And he just started calling and those cows and calves were answering back. And I remember right then I thought, I want to learn how to do that. And so I kind of credit him for, you know, putting the first call in my mouth and kind of showing me how he did it. And his style of how he did it, how he held his mouth and everything. And to this day, he's still a phenomenal caller. And uh, it's just, uh, you know, turkey calling, elk calling. I love both of those things. Before we dive any deeper into the in the hunting world and fishing world, take me back to your childhood. Where did you grow up? What was, you know, what was a 10-year-old Jay Scott like? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I was raised in a family that's not a hunting family. Uh, My parents divorced when I was a year and a half, and uh, my dad ran a ranch. He's always run ranches and stuff. Uh, And I grew up in a non-hunting family. My grandparents on both sides, uh, I came from a ranching family, and but they weren't really hunters. So as a you know six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old kid. I was the one that my grandma would get me Field and Stream magazine, Outdoor Life magazine, any of those hunting and fishing magazines. You know when they have these magazine drives for school and stuff? She would always order me the hunting and fishing magazines, and I was the kid that took the corner of the page and like, oh, there's good tips on this and underlined stuff and like kept magazines and was the kid that just wanted to go hunting and fishing but really didn't get exposed to it. Um, like I probably would have wanted to, but you know, for like my birthday, I would always say, I want to go fishing down at the dock in, in Arizona, um, which is a very arid state, tough to fish, you know, not great fishing opportunities in Arizona, but I always wanted to get out. And then a a friend of mine in grade school, probably seventh, eighth grade, somewhere in there, his, his, one of my good friends, Jason Meldy, his parents uh, were big into hunting and his dad kind of took me with his two boys like I was one of theirs and exposed me to you know archery hunting and, and all yep, of that kind of stuff and once I was exposed and and you know then came where I got my own vehicle when I was 16 and could drive and could go places that's when hunting and fishing for me 
really took over. Um, I was also really big into golf and I worked at the golf course since I was 15 years old. Uh, but getting my own vehicle and being able to go somewhere to go fishing or go somewhere to go hunting was kind of the catalyst to, you know, me getting out there and, and doing it. Right. So your father was not a hunter, nope. fisherman. Nope. Okay. St- still not into hunting and fishing. And really? People ask him all the time, well, how did Jay get so into this? And he just shakes his head. I don't know, but he, he's like, he's really into it. Does he, does he frown upon it? Not at all. No, not at all. Um, you know, my parents have been, uh, you know, very supportive. My, my, uh, yeah, they've been supportive of everything I've Great. wanted to do, whether it's golf or hunting and fishing or whatever it is. Any brothers or sisters? I have, I have all sisters. So I have a younger sister that's eight years younger than me. And I have a two year old, uh, two year older sister. So I'm, I'm the only boy. Are they into this world at all? Not at all. Nope. I'm the only hunter. You're an outsider. Yeah. I'm the outside. I'm the black sheep <laughs> of the family. <laughs> so, um, you know, obviously being young, but your grandmother introduced you to these magazines. Was she from that environment? Well, she's, she was a rancher's daughter and, um, you know, she, she would take my uncles and stuff, uh, hunting and they liked to deer hunt on the ranch and, and, and that, but not necessarily, but she saw early on that and, and my grandfather too, that I really liked the outdoors, uh, and you know, anything to do with hunting and fishing, I was all in. So were you as much of a fisherman at that stage or was hunting first? I, I would say I was every bit as passionate about hunting and fishing. And I still am today. People ask me, you know, what do you like better? And I'm, my wife laughs. She says, whatever season it is, that's right. what he's in. Right. So the, the beauty for me about the outdoors and hunting and fishing that I, I think is so cool is the seasons. So, you, you know, you have, we just came off what I would call fishing season in the summer. We're fishing, fly fishing, moving water for trout, which is what I really like. Then I go into elk season. Then I go into deer season. Then it goes into bighorn sheep season. Then there's a little bit of a lull kind of, you know, February, Marches, and then turkey season. Uh, and then I started all over again. So the, the way that I'm able to go at the pace that I go and you guys can relate is you kind of get a break from it and you right. kind of, when you switch seasons, you know, get tired. It's hard to say you get tired of elk, but you do it for about 30 days and you're ready for something the different. body gets tired. Too, yeah. I mean, right. it's, you're, you're mentally, physically, you're beat up and it's fun to kind of transition. Okay. And now I need to start thinking about deer rutting or I need to start thinking about bighorn sheep. Um, you know, I guide bighorn sheep in Arizona and I guide coos deer hunts in Mexico. And so I'm able to kind of transition from one to the other and it really gets me going. And I go hard for about 30 or 45 days on, on a certain animal. And then I'm, I move on. So you got the bug, the hunting bug early on. When did you, was there a point in time where you thought, man, I'm going to do this professionally. I'm going to start guiding or what did it just fall into place? Yeah. So the way that that came about in Arizona, it's hard to get a tag for elk. It's, it's a limited entry state where, you know, they don't give a ton of permits. And when I was in college, I actually played for a small school, Grand Canyon university, uh, played golf in college. And I, as soon as kind of my golfing, once I realized that pro golf was not, you know, I don't have the talent for pro golf, probably don't have the men- mental aspect for pro golf because I'm a little bit of a spaz and can get mad. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm not that even keel guy. Uh, it was easy for me to start transitioning and focusing on, okay, what am I going to do for a living? And that's real estate. And then it was, 
well, I could spend more time in the woods if I became a guide. So that's when the lights went off. Basically, when I got out of college in 1996 or 97, it was like, if I get my guide's license, then I can guide and go on these great hunts in these great units in Arizona and be able to be in unit nine and unit 23 and unit 3C and unit one right during the peak of the rut because the chances of me drawing a tag is not good. Right. Uh, But I can, so that's how I became a guide and so I could spend more time in the elk woods. And so, I mean, since I got out of college, I have spent every single September, the entire month in the elk woods chasing videoing, bugling, you know, just everything to do with elk bugling and, right? and calling. I love it. Yeah. Was, uh, did you grow up with a 22 initially? When did the bow come into play? So archery hunting was another, just an extension of if I become an archer, I have a better chance to draw tags. I can go hunt places where they offer archery seasons and rifle tags are hard to get. So you know, people ask me, they're like, are you a bow hunter? I'm like, I think like a bow hunter, but I'm a rifle hunter. In other words, I love bow hunting and I'll bow hunt at any given time if I have the opportunity. And I think like a bow hunter, but I'll also hunt with a rifle. I'll hunt with a muzzleloader. I'll, I'll throw a, you know, I'll throw a grenade at them, whatever. But right? your two big 400 bulls came from a bow. I shot one with the bow and one with the rifle. Yeah. So it sounds to me like it was just the opportunity to get out in the woods and to hunt. It's yeah. not n- no weapon of choice. It's yeah, and it's kind of like I love fly fishing, but I love all sorts of fishing. Right. You know, right. and Same I here. love hunting and, uh, you know, uh, you give me any way to figure out, you know, I'll use a blow dart, you know, whatever. Right. whatever we'll just, whatever it takes to get it done, that's what, that's what I'll do. Did you have a mentor? That's a good question. I, I don't know that I would ha- be able to say I had a specific mentor, like the guy Scott Hill that I told you about that gave me my first elk call. I would say he was my mentor in calling. Um, but I've always been one of these guys that love to read. I love to watch videos, anything I can to learn. And then, um, a, a, you know, my mom used to say in kindergarten, I was the kid that would watch the kid on the swing, watch him going up and how he could really build momentum and do you want to try jay no no i'm good i don't want to try and i'd watch i'm learning and i was learning and then once i got on she said my teachers i would get in trouble because i wouldn't get off so i'd i'd figure out how to swing and i'd get swinging as good you know like and i figured it out and then they'd have to say jay recess is over you got to go and i'd be like i'm not leaving so i was so there was some of that but i think in all aspects of my life, I'm one of those guys that I like to watch and I like to learn and then I like to kind of figure it out and go at my own pace. I'm not really the first one to just jump in and say, I'll try it. But then one of the, I like to do things that I'm good at, which I think we all do. Right. And then once you find something you're good at, I like to kind of perfect that, if that makes sense. Because I think initially words are hard to associate and, and relate to. When somebody says, like when, when I was a skier, the coach would say, look, you've got to move the apex right here and you've got to do something, you know, whatever it might be, but you're trying to figure out what he's saying until you see the video that night after the training session that day. Then you see exactly what you're talking about. So here's my question with the hunting world. Our mentor, Josh Kilbane from Steamboat, when we first started getting into this, 
we were trying to blow bugles and this and that, and you get into the woods, and I would think it would be really hard to become a good hunter or a good tarpon fly fisherman without somebody showing you on the water and in the woods exactly how it's supposed to sound and what you're supposed to look for. And that, I think the learning curve becomes very steep if you have a mentor. Yeah, yeah. and I think you can pick up and and kind of jump leaps and bounds if you can see it, hear it, you can see it demonstrated. I just got a golf lesson the other day from a mutual friend, Stan Utley, and he was kind of telling me, but then once he took video of me and showed me, he's like, this is what you're doing. Now this is what I want you to do. It was like, it clicked for me. So right. what works for me is seeing it, hearing it. Um, you know, I talk about having a musical ear when it comes to elk calling or turkey calling or anything like that. The best thing that trained me in elk calling was I was fortunate to spend so much time for so long in great areas where I heard tons of bulls bugling. I heard tons of cows calling and anybody with the musical ear can hear something and then try and get where they can mimic it. You know, you're mimicking the rhythm, you're mi mimicking the tone, the sound. Uh, and then, and then once you once you hear that, then you take that and try and call back to them and see what works and what doesn't work. And also understanding what they're saying. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole other thing to it. And I don't know that I'll ever have a full grasp on w exactly what they're saying. A lot of times I think I know what they're saying. Um, you know, a friend of mine, Chris Rowe, I've had him on my podcast a bunch. And he really is focused on elk behavior and trying to figure out when they're saying it, why they're saying it and all of that. And he's got some great stuff. If you guys haven't checked it out, you should. Uh, mine has come more from just watching elk and listening to elk and then trying to call to them and knowing what works and knowing what doesn't work and then trying to reproduce that. Right. In my real estate business, kind of the same thing. I figured out early on, I was watching these guys and they were buying properties in bulk and then they were bringing in utilities and improvements and that they were selling them off individually and, you know, buy in bulk, sell, you know, um, buy in bulk and then sell off little pieces. And I was watching, you know, how they were doing it. So I did this, you know, I started figuring out the same thing and, and then I found something that worked and I, that's how I became successful at real, developing real estate is I found something that worked and I didn't go out and try and do something totally different. I tried to replicate exactly what I had already done. And then once I had done that, I tried to do it as many times as I could. And that's, you know, what I do with my elk calling and, and, and other things. I just, you know, like you guys, when you find something that you're good at, you find something that works, you just replicate it. I think too many people try and chase something new instead of just doing you know doing being very good at what you're good at right jay that being said do you mind uh cow calling a little bit for yeah, us i mean yeah, sure. jay scott is one of the best cow callers in the world well i don't know about that but um you know I, scott hill taught me a lot of things and that's one the, the one biggest thing is i learned really early on is to kind of open your mouth at the end of the call so we'll see here mouth's a little dry
that's, that's kind of just you know i would probably never blow that sequence that much right, in the sure. woods but it kind of just gives you the rhythm and the timing right. and, the, and the tonal quality of kind of what i'm looking for well you just said it but the best tip i've ever heard you say on your youtube videos is open that mouth and at the end of the cow call everyone wants to close it yeah i mean if you watch cow elk when they call they never close their mouth and and sometimes their mouth is like this and it never even moves it's just right. yeah yeah but then you'll see them they'll open their mouth yeah yeah right yeah and a lot of people we've we've read on the old you know primos um is one of the founders of you know elk diaphragms and what have you and wayne carlton and on the packaging you used to read it would say say eo yeah right well, I is think that that's right? the worst thing you could do is yo. Yeah, yeah. I remember that too when I first E-o. got it. Yo. It, it said that on E-o. the packaging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is my interpretation of what they want you to do. That's, that's exactly like how I first started doing it. Yeah, I mean, whereas mine is going to be. See the difference? Right. Most people close their mouth, shut it down, where I want to open and drop that lower jaw, and that's what gets that, yeah, yeah. I mean, to all the fishermen out there, and and maybe they don't elk hunt or or deer hunt or whatnot, um, they might think that that's just a really subtle change, but that change is a a a, big— Oh, it's a game changer. It's a game changer. Yeah. It's the difference from being realistic and an elk going, that's an elk, to an elk going, that ain't right. Especially a pressured elk. That's a, it's, you need to have that. That nasal. That nasal. Right. May I? Yes. Oh boy. Brace yourself. <laughs> Wait. Dog bird. <laughs> it's good. 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 Okay. My favorite part of the call is when you're, yeah, that's my favorite part. Perfect. Good. He's got it. He <laughs> gave me the thumbs up. <laughs> That's a dead elk. What makes the difference between a good hunter and a great hunter? I think mental toughness. I think like a lot of things, I think people that are willing to to suck it up when things are tough and keep going and keep plodding forward and not giving up. I think it's real easy. We've all had tough days when it's just not going well. We've had tough weeks, tough seasons where it's just, you know, you just got to keep going. And I think you've got to be super diligent and persistent. Um, you got to be particular with the, the little things. You know, you've got to take care of all the details. You got to do, you know, things that other people don't do, you know, whether it be scent control or, you know, getting your body ready to be able to, you know, go, go, go for scent control. How do you do that? Do you spray? Well, I mean, free stuff. I, I'm a firm believer that if an elk's on the wrong side of the wind, they're going to wind you anyway, no matter what. But there are things you can do, like you know, not smelling like campfire smoke helps. I think um, you know if you can take showers, baths. You know, even if it's in, you know, you're up camping, you can you know clean under under your arms and just try and stay as clean and as scent free as you can. Um, I think that, you know, goes a long way. We were in the woods one time uh, above Aspen in a very remote area. And a buddy of mine and I, we saw this hunter across the way. Come to find out he's a 
pretty famous guy up here that runs around all the time. And so we snuck over there and my buddy had this new camo stuff on and we get over there and this guy says, dude, I can see you from 300 yards away. And he said, well, we saw you too, right? And he got downwind of my buddy and he looks up and my buddy's about 6'3 and this guy's about 5'8 and he goes, Dude, you smell like a bar of soap. <laughs> <laughs> he was so pissed. <laughs> he was so pissed. But um, but two, I th- I think I think good hunters and good fishermen. There's a little bit of a difference there. There's a gap because I've always felt that great fishermen can catch the fish that don't want to be caught. Great guides can find the fish that don't want to be found. Mm -hmm. Maybe great guides in hunting can find the elk that don't want to be found. And great hunters, too, not only know how to find them, but they can find elk that can't be found. And and they can kill them. I I think it goes to being mentally tough and being mentally prepared that you realize that you are searching for that needle in a haystack and you're not going to be looking in those places where everybody's looking. And you know, you have to be willing to say, I'm going to do something different. I'm not going to take the easy route. I'm going to, you know, take the ingress into the spot that takes me another hour to get there where most guys are going to come up from the bottom. I'm going to fight my way up through and get above, you know, and with fishing, I would think there's things, you know, that, that your saltwater buddies do that nobody else does. And that's why they're better than, that's why they have more success because they take their time to do everything, put all of the advantages in their favor, you know, and do the things that are going to make them successful and not be lazy in any of the preparation. I mean, I would, I would assume the world championships, the Tarpon world championships, all the stuff you've won, there's things you've done that other people don't do. I mean, and you do it on a routine basis, right? You get a good team. You get a, you get a guy, good team member, right? And everybody's on the same page and, um, you know, one of the things with hunting, you know, different animals and, you know, trying to kill mature animals, trophy animals and such, it sometimes it takes not shooting certain animals because you know that there's a bigger one around and, you know, you go six days and you're thinking, golly, we should have shot that one. And then all of a sudden, boom, you're right there and you, you kill the big one because you've held off. You know, you had some um, mental toughness to realize that, you know, you're after a certain animal. All right, I got a question for you, Jay. Mm-hmm. After all the different species you've hunted over the years, if you had one last hunt, what would it be and where would it be? You know, Alaskan sheep? You know, that last year I was exposed to my first doll sheep hunt, and I went on two of them. I went in the Chugach in Alaska, and it was amazing, and went to the Northwest Territories. And so, you know, there's a whole aspect of sheep hunting that intrigues me. Um, so, you know... I'd still have to go back to bull elk. I'd have to say bugling, you know, one of the good units in Arizona or, uh, you know, one of the reservations in Arizona where you have tons of opportunity. I love hearing elk bugle. San Carlos. I mean, San Carlos is hard to beat. Uh, they have very limited tags and have, um, you know, the bulls scream like crazy. The White Mountain's an amazing place. They have a few more hunters, have more terrain, uh, probably more elk, but, you know, my wife always says, because I get that question a lot, and it's, you know, whatever season, but the reality is there's something about a bull elk screaming to me that right. that is kind of the pinnacle of, of, you know, hunting for me. Well, it's kind of interesting because you're speaking to the animal literally. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that's so exciting about it is, 
literally, as you guys know, when you can kind of get those interactions and, you know, you're, you're calling to that elk and he's coming to you. I mean, that's, that's the highest point of the, the, the sport that we love. And I mean, if elk didn't bugle, we wouldn't like them near as much, right? you know, and sure. if there wasn't that interaction of them calling you trying to figure out where you need to be to set up, to have them come in and then you call and they come to you, that's like as good as it can, it can possibly be. How do, do you, now do you, you don't work with anybody, but you do have a ranch now. You're the hunt manager yeah, at, so, at odd six. Yeah. So in 2017, a friend of mine, uh, purchased a ranch in South central Colorado and asked me to be the hunt manager. And all my buddies give me a hard time. Cause they're like, wait a minute, you're the hunt manager, but you don't really offer hunts. I said, well, it's for a, a private family. Uh, and we are in the ranching for wildlife program in the state of Colorado. So we do offer one public tag for Colorado residents that can apply for it. And, um, last year was our first year actually hunting the ranch and we killed three management bulls on the property. It's about 50,000 acres and it's, you know, elk heaven. We've got about a thousand head of resident elk. And uh, me and a kid that works with me, we run about 150 trail cameras, both um, photo and video cameras, 4K video cameras. And so I basically spend September and October every morning glassing elk, videoing elk, and then checking cameras. And then in the evening, glassing, videoing, calling, just messing with the elk. Uh, and it's, you know, kind of a dream job for sure. Why so much of that? Because you know who, where they are and what animals are there. I yeah, a hundred cameras. It sounds like, and you got a thousand elk. It sounds like it's overkill. You're Duracell's biggest customer. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's we we definitely run through a lot of batteries for sure. Uh, basically, just trying to make the Ot Six Ranch as good as we possibly can, and trying to let the bulls grow up and get as big as they possibly can. Uh, you know, the, the elk, it's completely free range. I mean, we're, we're in an over the counter unit. Uh, so the elk come and go, uh, and it's just kind of fun to be able to now 2017, 2018, now our pictures in 2019, we've got bulls that now we have history with for three years wow. watching how Growth. they've developed and, you know, you leave them and think, well, will that one be bigger? And he's the exact same size this year. And then you got one that's smaller. And then all of a sudden you have one that's blown up. And to me, that's part of the fun, uh, you know, of being able to watch them go from antler configuration, how it changes, how maybe it, you know, some bulls are exactly the same. They've been the same for the last three years. They haven't changed at all. And then there's some that, you know, maybe are old enough where they're starting to regress in their antler configurations, you know, you know, shorter points, heavier, you know, that type of thing. And then there's some that are just blowing up that it's fun to watch them kind of progress. I'm sure it's great for marketing as well, because if you say you have a 350 class bull on your property, that's one thing. But to see video of a 350 bull raking a tree or being in a wallow, it's just cool. And you can put it on Instagram and Facebook. And yeah really market it. it it's fun uh right now the, the the ranch the people that hunt the ranch are just family um maybe in a future date they'll offer a tag or Got two and, and sell a tag or two so you know part of the fun of it for me is basically watching and monitoring certain bulls and trying to track you know throughout the rut do they stay in the same part of the ranch do they move around and you know what we've learned is those elk move a ton just like in arizona i mean our bulls 
will summer and and then they'll go to rut usually 15 to 30 miles away wow very very common for some of our biggest bulls in arizona to uh you know i was i was i got it for 20 years in arizona and there would be bulls that i would never see in the summer at all and then i would be looking for them in specific meadows and sure enough they'd show up you know as soon as the rut hit they'd, they'd show up so and then with trail cameras and the expansion of trail cameras and what have you, it's been a lot easier to track them. Um, say in Unit Nine, they're summering here, and then they travel 30 miles, and they're they're killed in Seven West because that's where they want to go rut. Hmm. I've always heard that the big mature bulls and some of the bigger animals that are killed in Arizona area, their summer and winter range is relatively close, and they don't have to endure a big winter. That's exactly right. I mean a. a well, you've got what you're saying is true. A lot of times where they found in the summer, they show right back there and that's where you can find their sheds, but they go somewhere else to rut. Now, keep in mind, some bulls rut and they live their whole life within a three to five mile circle. But then there's some bulls that, you know, they summer here, which is not necessarily high country like peaks around here, but it might be just, you know, pinion juniper terrain, you know, six, 7,000 feet. And then they go to rut and they come back. So a lot of times mature bulls, my buddies that pick up a lot of sheds, the mature bulls seem to shed basically on the same ridge. They go back to the same spot. So definitely in a winter situation, they tend to winter in the same exact spot year after year. They find a place that they're comfortable with. They find a place that they can survive kind of away from the hubbub of people and what have you. And that's where they just come back. And I have buddies that are really into shed hunting and they'll find the same bull sheds four or five years in a row, basically within a, you know, half mile circle. How do you monitor I mean, your, your life? You're so busy because you're, you're guiding, you're fishing, you're a real estate yeah, developer. It, yeah. It's uh, a podcast king. Well, <laughs> I, you know, it's one of those things that, uh, if I'm not busy, I, I get in trouble. So, so, um, staying busy is good for me. And, and I, I'm usually good at juggling, you know, quite a bit of, um, stuff at one time. So how do you, how do you hunt yourself versus guide? It's tough. I, I don't hunt. I hunted a lot more years ago than I do now. I guide way more than I actually hunt personally. Um, but I really enjoy guiding. Honestly, I would rather, this sounds kind of crazy. I would honestly rather take someone that maybe someone that's either very advanced and he's looking for something particular or take someone that's never been and be able to see the joy on their face. And I, you know, I've had some people say, Oh, that's a bunch of bull. You, if you could, you would hunt yourself. Well, I can, I, I like guiding. I, I, I like it. I, I like the interaction and I like to bring people joy. And so um, you know, my hunting personally is not as expansive as it used to be, um, but I still try and get on a hunt or two every year myself and, and go out and just kind of do my thing. So you'll save a couple of days on a specific week uh, in the season for yourself? Yeah, I mean, elk, elk hunting is pretty tough for me because especially with this gig at the Ot 6 Ranch, you know, it pretty much ties up all my time. Right. So as far as me going out and harvesting a bull elk, I mean, that's really not in the cards right now. And I'm okay with that. I love eating elk meat and, you know, we have cow hunts and stuff on the ranch that we can do and I can get elk meat, but, um, I love guiding. Love it. It's interesting you say that because I would think that if you're 
that if you enjoy guiding, your client's got to be fit. He's got to be willing to endure some pain, and he's got to be a good shot. I've had friends come on my boat that I love, mm -hmm. and after the first four minutes, you want to throw them off. It's like why? Yeah. Why did I invite them to come? Yeah, they can't cast, they can't see, and now I got to push my boat for five days into a twenty mile an hour wind. Right, and put them right on the fish, and then they can't make the shot. Yeah, it's fine to work hard if they can get the job done, but right. if, if they have no chance, it's like. Yeah. Do you the ever only, have that where you get a client and you go, oh my God, what am I doing? Well, I like to row a boat in the summer. And the one thing I will say is I tell guys, if you can't tie your own flies and if you can't get, net your own fish, you're not right you're with out. me because I'm not tying knots and I'm, you know, you That's can That's good. I like that. And it's, it's one of those things that, you know, from a boat rowing perspective, I totally get what you're saying. If you, you know, if you're pulling on the flats and you're working your butt off, and you're there to see the fish get caught. You want to see it get caught. At some point. And, but if you know they can't make it, you know, I've rowed people down the river before where you're just like, what, I mean, I'm basically taking them on a whitewater float yeah. because they can't hit the spots. I have to pull over to tie their knots. I mean, how guys do, I mean, you you tie a lot of knots. You guys fishermen. Yeah. Uh, a lot of flies in the trees. I mean, the patience level. But the hunting, I think, is a little different in that. I always tell guides that work for me or with me, your job is to put them in position to succeed. They're hiring you for a reason. So you have to take their weaknesses and you have to work around them and you, ha you have to be the professional. And that's part of the challenge. Uh, you know, if a guy tells you, you know, I can only shoot, you know, a rifle 250 yards or 200 yards and you say, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have to get close. We're going to have to be quiet. And, you know, I would say when you pull that off, just as if you, you know, took me out and I'm casting and you're just going, oh my gosh, that fish, it was a gimme. And, but the one time I throw it there, you would probably be ecstatic if I caught the fish and, you know, just started bawling because I was so excited that right. it was awesome. That would probably make it for you. What if you took the same guy and you're like, I'm going to waste five days with this guy. I hit the shot, I catch the fish, and I go, is this all it was? Then you'd probably <laughs> kick me off. You'd right. be like, you're a boat anchor. Right. So for me in guiding, I think a lot of it is I love guiding people that really um, appreciate it and that get excited when we have success. Have you ever pulled or have you ever been in a situation where you pull in a big animal and you're thinking, this client does not deserve this animal? I've never thought that they don't deserve it, but there's definitely been times when I think they have no idea what we what we just did. Um, there's certainly been times where, you know, shot some big giant thing and they're, I mean, they know it's giant, but they don't realize it's like world-class, like, you know, top, you know, best, of, best shot in the state that year, or best shot in the state in a decade type of thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's been times when people have no idea, just like if you were to take someone fishing and, right. you know, they catch a 23-inch brown or something, and you're like, this is the biggest fish I've seen in five years. Yeah, and they're, and they're thinking, oh, that's just guide and talk. They're, yeah, and or they're like, so are we going to, are we, you know, yeah, like, you get a no, bigger one? you're done. Put your rod up. Let's just right. enjoy it. Like, no, you know, and maybe the same guy's going, well, can I? can I throw in that hole? And you're like, dude, you just caught the fish of the you know, best one I've seen in five years. Right. Like, let's just go back to the truck and go have dinner and just enjoy it. That type yeah. of thing. So I'm going to get a little specific in archery hunting. Um, what, 
what do you prefer, mechanical or fixed broadheads? So if we're talking elk, I mean, it's we're talking elk, yeah. pretty hard to beat a fixed broadhead in the fact that mechanicals are getting better and better every day. The one thing that I like about mechanicals is most people can shoot the mechanicals a lot better and they can, because people don't spend the time shooting enough and shooting their broadheads, they can just pick up and screw on a mechanical and it flies like their field point. So on one perspective, I would say mechanicals are great because they fly like people's field points. I would say if you make bad hits with mechanicals, that's where you're running into problems. If you make bad hits with a fixed broadhead, you have a lot better chance for better penetration, a lot better chance for a blood trail, a bigger hole. You know, um, you've got, if you can get it in the body cavity, you've got a fixed broadhead that is going to be cutting as it's, you know, they're wiggling around. Sometimes if the mechanical broadhead doesn't open up. So I totally agree with you. I mean, I've always said, and you know, some of these new mechanical broadheads, they're getting pretty darn good. They're making cut on tip, uh, cut on contact tips. Um, they are expanding backwards. So, you know, they're, they're getting that expansion. But a fixed blade is pretty hard to beat. I Which agree. one in particular do you like the best? You know, I used to shoot those Muzzy Phantom two-blade broadhead. They would have the actual bleeder blade to make them a four, but I would shoot a two-blade Muzzy Phantom because they shot really well, and I got incredible penetration. The only downside to, like, a Muzzy Phantom is the fact that it's a small hole because it's basically slicing through. You're getting, you know, tons of pass-throughs. Kind of like the Falcon? I'm not familiar with that, but, um, you know, then there's the three blade broadhead, which is going to make a big hole and it's going to make a good blood trail. So, I mean, yeah, I always went with penetration and I always went with, you know, I'm going to try and make the best shot that I can make. And I think that's part of being a bow hunter is having the discipline to know that I'm not taking that shot and I'm going to make an ethical and clean shot. And we all know that you know elk are tough animals um so i mean i would lean to tell people fixed blade right. but i would tell you if if you were an incredible shot and you shot really well i think some some mechanical broadheads these days can they can be deadly well it's interesting because when you were at the white mountains i believe that they banned uh, mechanical broadheads yeah, right. correct? i think they're they, still banned are yeah. they still yeah. banned yeah hmm. yeah yeah so I mean, Randy Ulmer, he's been known to shoot mechanical broadheads, but he's, you know, the best shot in the world. I've known him for you know, 25 years. He's unbelievable. He's, 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 you know, he's probably the best bow hunter in the world. And, um, he's been shooting a lot of, uh, animals with mechanicals and him and his brother actually designed a mechanical broadhead. Uh, and I believe he was sponsored early on by rage, which is a mechanical broadhead. So, I mean, I've seen elk shot with a mechanical broadhead and they die in sight. And I've seen yeah, elk right. shot with a fixed blade. So the, I go back to placement, you right. know, the good, biggest thing is good placement. shot opportunity, good placement. And, you know, either one of them is going to kill them. Do you Ta think that's probably the biggest mistake uh, of a novice um, a hunter is lack of accuracy, lack of shooting a lot and becoming really a great archer? I think when it comes to killing, yes. I think taking the bad shot, I think people, you know, speaking personally, I think being able to control your emotions and make the shot count at the right time, but don't take shots that are chancy, 
or you know the better shot opportunity you can take the better chance you have to kill and you know you dance we everybody it seems these days dances around it we're, we're there to kill i mean we're there to kill and eat the meat and that's what we do um but to be as effective as you can you've got to take good shots you know it's interesting it's the same analogy with tarpon fishing and the fact that you've got to wait for the shot a lot of people make that long cast. The fly lands in the wrong spot. The fish never sees right. the fly. You're out of the game. You got to cast again. Right now, they feel the boat because you're pushing the boat. It feels the wake, and it's game over. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and that's. I mean, that's why bow hunting as a discipline is is such a cool thing because you know it takes the right spot, it takes the right position of the animal, and then you have to execute the shot. And that's what makes bow hunting so special as opposed to rifle hunting because a lot of times with rifle shots, you can still make a bad shot and still get the animal. Well, you can very rarely make a bad shot with a bow and get them. So that's what makes bow hunting so unique and kind of it's like an intricate sport rather than rifle hunting where you could just pull up and blast them anywhere and pretty, pretty much going to get a follow-up shot. So there's talk about Colorado introducing wolves back in the state. How do you feel about that? I want to hear your perspective on it. I think uh, I've got enough friends in the Jackson, Wyoming area and then, you know, Gardner, Montana area. Uh, I have friends that hunted in Idaho that just say they had spots where elk and deer lived and were everywhere. And uh, and now you can't find an elk. Um, I think it's been proven that wolves don't play well with other animals. Um, I'm a deer and elk nut. I love sheep. I love, you know, the ungulates. And, you know, it's hard to pick one animal over the other. Um, I think wolves in general are, are unbelievably cool animals. Uh, I just think there's a place for them. And personally, I don't think there's a place for them in, in the Colorado landscape. I think they... They've been proven that they, um, <clears throat> I think historically in the States, you know, Arizona, we have the Mexican gray wolves been introduced. And I think the biggest thing like in Yellowstone is once they were reintroduced or, you know, established there, they weren't pulled off the endangered species list or they weren't managed properly. I think if they were managed properly and they had a quota of X amount of wolves, which they say they do, but the reality is I think the wolf, um, once they get established and once they bring them back and once they, I, I just don't think they'll put a cap on them. I don't right. think they'll institute a hunt where we can keep them in check. And I think it's problematic. I, I, I'm not for it at all one bit. It was interesting because we had a mutual friend that went over to Idaho to elk hunt, and he said that the the elk were very um, on shy, edge. on edge, on edge, yeah, yeah, and they weren't vocalizing at all. And um, he he was thinking that it's because they can pinpoint that that elk, whether it be a cow or a bull, and and um, you know all they're thinking about is food. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you hear the arguments that the wolves are going to thin out the weakest of the herd. That's just not true. Right. They're going to kill anything they can. Um, it's proven. I mean, it, it's proven they eat every moose, elk, deer, anything they can eat. And, you know, I just don't think it's a good mix. I, I, I don't think my opinion matters. I think they're going to enter. I think they're coming back in Colorado. Um, Is that right? I think I think so. I mean, I think it's inevitable. Um that's just my opinion. I, they've just been proven to not play well with other animals. 
So does that mean Grizzlies is going to come back? I I mean, yeah, who knows? Yeah. As, as an elk hunter, though, I say no wolves. Yeah. It's just it. It's like, do you introduce a piranha in your pond where you have trout? I mean, I, I mean, right. I mean, they're going to eat every other fish in there, and then you're just going to have a piranha, or you know, maybe a piranha isn't the best example, but you get what I'm right. saying. Like, sure. You know, you you've got a pond out here, and you like to go catch trout. You enter a muskie, you put it in there. No, the muskie's going to eat every yeah. single trout in there, and then what? You have one muskie. Yeah. Yeah, definitely make hunting a lot. A lot tougher. I mean, it's already sure. tough around right. here. Right. You know. Let's talk about public land hunting. When was the last time you hunted public land? Uh, probably 2016 elk. When we're talking elk, 2016, I drew a tag in the Beaver, Utah, which is all public land. Um, that's probably the best premium tag that, I, that I've drawn on public land. Uh, Utah, the Beaver unit is an amazing place. Probably one of the best elk um, as far as habitat places I've been, numbers of elk, phenomenal experience, some fantastic big, big bulls. The only thing about Utah that's kind of a bummer is their archery season ends on the 17th, I believe, 16th or 17th of September. Just so, prior to the big, the good run. Yeah, I mean, you know, it starts early, so you get like a month long, but it starts like the 15th or 20th of august but they're really not bugling my whole point of hunting elk is i love it when they're bugling right so the archery seasons on public land in utah just don't quite get into the rut but let's talk about public land where you don't you can't draw mm -hmm. you're not like otc about, yeah, yeah over the counter yeah. like how we do it yeah that i it's really a pain in the ass no, <laughs> use the ass part, but it's really hard. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally get it. Uh, you know, Colorado is probably the best state in the country for over-the-counter elk, but is and it gets tons of publicity as you know being probably the best state for over-the-counter elk. But let's face it, you guys are locals here, and it's tough. Very like, tough. You you guys go all over the state looking for over-the-counter elk, and it's tough. I haven't hunted public land OTC elk in a long, long time. I don't blame you. <laughs> I want to hunt with you. <laughs> you got to cough up a chunk of cash. The, the, the biggest thing I've always said is, uh, you know, there's people that that's all they want to hunt is OTC, and I get it. Uh, I always say I want to put myself in the best hunt that I can, best fishing I can, right. best opportunity. I want to enjoy it. And, you know, people, the, the critique of that will be, oh, well, you've got it too easy. Maybe so. Um, but I'll, I like yeah. I like opportunities. I like at bats. Um, I think our public land here in this country is, you know, we have the best public land hunting in the world. I mean, there's no other place that has public land hunting like we do. I mean, we have phenomenal in Arizona. We have amazing coos deer hunting, amazing mule deer hunting, d desert bighorn sheep hunting. Um, those are draws. Those are not over the counter. You've got Colorado who had, you know, amazing uh, deer hunting and elk hunting here. Uh, and you know, the, the deer is all draw, but the elk is still over the counter. Uh, you know, I think Colorado has an interesting situation with managing, you know, they do a pretty good job with what they have, but you know, they've been, um, you know, the elk herd in Colorado is the golden goose, so to speak. And, you know, I would argue that, um, you know, they're trying to keep all the numbers in check and I get that, but you know, having a lot of people come out and hunt and having it not be successful and so tough might not be the best thing for it. Right. 
Well, after 20 plus years of being a hunting guide, do you have a story you'd like to sh- story you'd like to share with us that you know can be humorous or um, uh, you know um, emotional? Was it something that something that is uh, is a great story that the listeners would love to hear? Well, I can tell you um, one of my first uh, speaking of OTC elk, I'll tell you a, a funny story. So Scott Hill, the guy that introduced me to the elk calls, uh, took me out, and you know I. He, he got me where I was making pretty decent sounds with the, with the diaphragm here. And, um, we went up OTC elk. This is probably, let's see, I'm 46. This is probably 20, 25 years ago. And I go up first elk hunt, you know, I've got the bow, I'm all dialed in with the call and we lead the mules up we go like three or four miles up there and we set up a camp and I'm thinking, this is fantastic. He says, dad and I are going to go this way. Why don't you kind of go up that way and see what you can find? So I kind of wander up the trail. I have no, so this is, it's getting light and I'm just easing up this trail. And so I thought, well, I'll just try and call, you know? So I blow a couple cow calls and didn't hear anything. Kind of went up the trail a little bit further, blew a couple cow calls. And I thought, golly, it sounded like a bull squeal, just kind of a little weenie squeal down the hill. So I cow called a couple more times and it squealed back. And I thought, holy smokes, that's an elk. And it's, <laughs> I can tell it's coming. So I sit there and I kind of get ready. Three bulls end up coming, walking right up this trail. And they're just kind of walking head down, just kind of coming up like that. And I, this is what I can tell you I remember. I remember drawing back <laughs> and I remember my arrow stuck in an aspen tree going. <laughs> I don't remember looking through the peep side. I don't remember anchoring. I don't remember anything. I do remember literally uh, the old Easton aluminum arrows. It right. was stuck going. <laughs> that sound of like, you know, you you probably stuck one of your trees out here and heard it. And those bulls just looking around like this have no idea. I'm so rattled. I'm trying to get another arrow out of my quiver and, you know, get that whole thing. And by the time I do that, they've spooked off. And I thought, here was my opportunity first day out to be able to come back and be like, I got one. What's the big deal? And totally blew it. I mean, I shot, the best I can calculate is I shot two feet over that first bull that gave me the opportunity. I mean, I could have shot any of the three. I didn't look at any of their antlers other than there's three bulls and here they are. And I shot two feet over their back. Oh, that's funny. So, I mean, it, you know. Tell me about your 400 you killed with your bow. Where was that? Yeah, so in 2006, I killed a 406 gross bull with my bow and arrow. That 2006, I don't know how it was up here, but in Arizona, it was a drought year. Um, I had previously hunted 04. I shot like a 390s bull. Um, 05, I shot a big bull with my rifle on the San Carlos that was uh, 427 gross. Is a 7 by 7 mainframe, but he had a, a broken G6 on the right side. And if he would have had that G6, he would have grossed 440 typical. Oh. And he would have netted 424. Instead, he netted 404. Wow. The, the beautiful thing about the, and I don't know how it is now, but the San Carlos hunt was two weeks long. And I bought those hunts in 04, 05, and 06 because it's a 15-day season. It's the first 15 days and the second 15 days of September. 
And yes, they have big bulls, but the reason that I bought those tags is for the calling, the bugling, just the excitement, you know, calling in, you know, a dozen to 15 bulls in a morning, having them just come in screaming. Wow. That's why I bought the tag. So I shot the big bull in, in the really big bull in 05, and then 06 was a horrible drought year horrible drought year like even on the san carlos it was hard to find i mean they were still big mature bulls big fronts but like little back points and that's what happens when it's when in it's, arizona when we have drought typically the tops the, are the tops are short so i hunted i think on the ninth day there was this bull and he just had this goofy bugle and i had heard him in the morning and he just had this real distinct kind of wolf sounding kind of howler kind of bugle. And I thought, I just want to see what this bull is. You know, he didn't have like a big growly bugle, uh, but he had a bugle that I could hear and go. And that's what I like to do. I like to, um, I like to find a bull and hear that bull. And then I say, I want to call that bull in and then call him in and then hear something else. And so this one was easy because he had a really distinct bugle. Afternoon, I go out. On the San Carlos, you have to have an Indian guide with you, which I did. And I'm like, that's that bull. Let's go see what he is. So we snuck up there and he was bugling. I wasn't calling. I snuck in there and yeah, yeah. And he bugled and I could tell he was coming and he came and he kind of came under this tree. So it was like this juniper tree and he kind of was fighting his way through it. And I just saw his fronts coming and they were big and, you know, they just swept up like that. And I was already at full draw and it was like 12 or 15 yards and he just came out and I yeah, stopped him, shot him and he spun around. And you know, when they get that look where they're just like, you know, just wobbling around and I knocked another arrow, I wasn't going to have happen what happened to me the very first time I knocked another arrow and he turned around the other way and I shot him going through the other way. So I double lunged him both ways and actually watched him fall over and die. And he's 406 gross, but he only has nine inch fifth points. And normally a bull, like he has 25 inch thirds, 22 inch um, seconds. He's got a, he's got a um, extra uh, eye guard on one side and, but he's only got nine inch fifths and he still scores 406. I mean, normally oh, a bull would wild. have, you know, minimum of 15 inch fifth points. Probably a bull of that caliber would have you know, on a, on a real year, he'd have 20 inch fifth and he'd be, you know, uh, 11, he'd be 22 inches bigger. So, I mean, he would have been 428. Oh my gosh. On a, on a, on a, you know, normal year. Right. That's a monster. Yeah. How'd you get into the podcast and how'd you get such a great following? I mean, obviously you're very good on camera. Uh, you're good at what you do, but how did this whole yeah, it's world, a, this new chapter of your life come to be. Yeah, so for a long time, like eight or ten years, I I ran a it was Jay Scott Outdoors um, blog. So I actually through Google, I did a blog for like ten years, and it I just wrote and took pictures about my hunting and fishing adventures, and so I kind of had that base set, and I had uh, people that. You know, I did a lot of field judging stuff. I did a lot of elk calling videos, a lot of stuff trying to be in, you know, helping people in educational, instructional, that kind of thing. You had a lot of content out already. I already had a, a pretty good base of content, you know, had, had a really good following on the blog. And it was one of the things that I would do a blog post about every day. And I did it for like close to probably eight or 10 years. Um, I had taken the meat eater, Stephen Ranella, um, 
hunting, I took them to Mexico Gould's turkey hunting, which I guide for Gould's turkeys. Uh, and the one particular property had buffalo on it, free-ranging buffalo. So I, I took Steve down on a hunt, and he filmed two shows. We filmed the Gould's turkey episode, and we filmed the buffalo episode, and got to know him. And to make a long story short, he's come multiple years and hunted deer. They do I do DIY coos deer hunts as well as guided, where people can come down and just hunt on their own. I set them up on the ranches. And... In uh, January of 2015, I had just got back from Mexico and um, Giannis, who is a friend of mine that was a fly fishing guide in Vail, and I kind of helped put the two of them together. To make a long story short, Giannis is now the producer of the Meat Eater Show and those two are really tight. Giannis sends me a email and says, hey, I've got a podcast episode that we just launched. I want you to listen to it. You know, my response was, what's a podcast? And he said, just listen to it. So I listened to it. It was an, like an hour long show. And it was Steve doing Steve's thing. He's phenomenal. He is phenomenal. He's phenomenal. Uh, he's a great ambassador for, you know, hunting and fishing and, and outdoor lifestyle uh, and, a, and a good friend. And I listened to it and I thought, this is great. And Giannis and Steve both said, hey, Jay, you should do a Western hunting and fishing podcast. Well, I immediately was kind of like, well, I don't want to step on your toes. You just show, and he's like, no, he's like, I mean, you can talk about tons of things. You're, you know, you're, it's, I felt like I'd be like competing. They're like, no, start. So I said, what equipment do I get? You know, so they said a Zoom recorder and they basically gave me the checklist of stuff. And I thought, well, yeah, let me give it a try. So two weeks later, I was up and running and it was a great way for me to, um, have guests on the show and kind of extract information on hunting and fishing certain animals and really get into um, strategies, tactics, um, you know, kind of really dive deep on, you know, how do I help someone kill their first coos deer? How the do nuances I, of yeah, all, this all stuff, of the yeah. stuff, um, you know, that we as sportsmen talk about with our buddies all the time. And my wife's like, you're already talking. You know, I was at the time because of the blog, you know, fielding a lot of emails and calls from people asking me the same stuff. So it was a perfect way for me to then publish the content and get it out there for people to, you know, learn. And it's just been a huge blessing for me to be able to help a ton of people and get, you know, emails, just countless direct messages on Instagram of, you know, man, your 10 episodes before coos deer season with all those different guides has helped me and upped my game. Um, you know, all the podcast episodes on elk hunting, I, I was able to follow all those things and listen to those scenarios that you guys had talked about. And I killed this bull because of listening to your podcast. That's the part of it for me that's so rewarding is truly every day I get messages from people saying, I learned that from the guests on your show. And if it weren't for that, so, and it's free to them. That's what I think is so beautiful about podcasts. And I think that's why it's been so widely received and people really enjoy podcasts is the fact that it's free. You know, they can listen and, you know, the sponsors of the show make my time and you guys' time where you can do that. 
uh, you know, I, I've just released, I think, my 601st episode. Uh, so I try and do 8 to 10 a month. Uh, a lot of months, it's, you know, 12 or 15 episodes. And it doesn't feel like work. It, it, uh, I enjoy it. Giving feels good. Giving feels good. And, and it's fun to really have people send you a sincere message and say, thank you. And I wasn't, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And I feel like hunting and fishing has given me so much. It's so easy for me to try and help other people. You know, there's so much joy that I've gotten from calling elk and calling turkeys and, you know, catching fish and what have you. And that joy that I have, you know, being able to enjoy the sport, I want to pass it on to other people. There's nothing better that there's no better compliment than someone saying, Hey, I decided to go fishing because I watched your Instagram and I I liked what I saw and I decided to do it. I had a, a month ago, I had a guy say my 10 year old son was watching your videos and said, dad, take me fishing. He took me fishing. He sent me a picture. You're changing lives. It it's, it's awesome. Good for you. What's your next goal? Where do you go from here? That's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I hadn't really thought about it. I just, uh, I think part of being busy, sometimes it's hard to kind of sit and go, okay, what's next right now for me, you know, 600 episodes, I keep in the back of my mind thinking a thousand episodes, you know, that's a lot of work. That's 400 more episodes. Um, but you know, there could be 2000 episodes. I don't know. You're a young man. You got a lot ahead of you. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing that I think is so exciting about uh, hunting and fishing is you can, I mean, I, I fish with people all the time, friends that, you know, I fish with once or twice a week that are 75 years old, 73 years old, you know, 78 years old that still love it. They're still excited in the morning when I pick them up in the car and they're like, let's go fish and maybe they'll eat a hopper today. I mean, that's what's so cool about the outdoors is, you, you know, yeah, there's things that you can't do, your body eventually can't do, but you know, there's still a lot of things you can do. It's everlasting. Yeah. Well, I mean, at the stage where I'm at now, I mean, we're still lucky that, but I am on the cusp. Um, I've had a lot of injuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had 13 knee operations. I got an artificial, you know, prosthesis, knee yeah. replacement. Had my back fused about two years ago. And it's like now, um, being very realistic with this, it's like, okay, do I buy landowner tags how can i stay in the game yeah and and i think that's i always say you know there's always the the critique that oh it's you know becoming a rich man's game and what have you and i say well it's becoming an opportunities game right and if someone can buy a landowner tag and hunt private land or hunt in a in a unit or a reservation or somewhere where it's going to give them a little bit better chance and and you've worked hard and you can afford it. Why not do it? You know it's Why interesting. Not? I I've always been seeing and comparing, and I feel this in that you have Unit Ten. I went over there scouting about a month ago with a buddy of mine that drew a tag there this year. Mm-hmm. Unit Ten is more private than private mm-hmm. because you can't twenty some points, twenty three points. That is like yeah, sure, it's public. You right. can't you can't buy it. You can't buy right. it. There's no access, so that's more uh, precious than the San Carlos and some of these other big ranches where you can buy a landowner tag or for sure, 
For sure. And, you know, a lot of these Western states have gone to a draw in a system. And, you know, there's people that say, well, I wish it was just over the counter for everyone. And, you know, the the flip side of that is, well, when you do draw that tag, it's phenomenal. And maybe it's a once in a lifetime and maybe you hunt OTC the rest of the state, but maybe you wait and you apply and you 22 years and you get the tag of your life. But you know what's funny? They say, you know, I get this on public. I killed this elk in public. Well, they did. Yeah, <laughs> well, they did. But it's like, yeah, right. And and that's been the gripe about Arizona is like, well, this is public land. And it's like, yeah, there's only a hundred tags. You take the state of Colorado, and if you limited it like you did in Arizona, you would have, in my opinion, just as big a bulls as here. Right. It's you think? As there. absolutely the genetics. I think the genetics are just as good here. I think over time, when you have. Um, well, this is a whole different argument, but over time, potentially with being able to just shoot every bull on the mountain, maybe your younger bulls are, are maturing or um, uh, rutting and doing the breeding, but it's still the same genetic. genetic. Whether they're a three-year-old or a seven-year-old, it's still the same genetic. They just get harvested. But they may, might not have the same feed. That's true. But if you go look in Arizona, you'd be like, what are they eating compared to here? Like if you took Arizona elk and brought them up here, they'd be like, "Oh my gosh, I'm in heaven." So it's so the the Rocky Mountain, you know, elk itself, you know, you have the Roosevelts and the others, mm-hmm. you know. So there's a different, you know, DNA, if mm-hmm. you will. Um, they've always assessed with tarpon fishing: are these African um, world record 285 pound tarpon the same tarpon that we fish in the Keys, you know, and but you're saying that these are Rocky Mountain elk, Rocky Mountain elk. So regardless of the winters and the feed, they may be just as big. Well, I think there's certainly animals have the ability to adapt to the conditions that they're in. Okay. But I think it comes down to age class. If Colorado had the same age class as Arizona, take Utah, for instance, Utah and Colorado have very similar terrain. Utah limits the number of tags in a lot of units and have premium units and they have giant elk. And and even some of the great units in Colorado, they have a lot bigger elk than the majority of elk on over-the-counter units. If you limit the harvest, they're going to be older. Right. Most of the time when they get older, they're going to have bigger antlers. Just like what we're trying to do at the Ot6 Ranch is we're trying to get the age class of our elk as high as we possibly can and let them be what they are. Right. All right, we've got three days to the opening of the season. What do we do next week? How should, <laughs> how should, how should we approach the over-the-counter no-tag unit? You know, I think, in my opinion... Early season is probably one of your better opportunities to call in a bull. Now, they're going to probably come in silent. Right. You're not going to hear them coming. On one hand, I think a lot of people put too much emphasis on early. Whereas if they would just wait when they're actually bugling and getting going a little bit, that they have a better chance to get up there and get a bull that's fired up. Early in the season, I think if you can go and you can find some elk and get in close to them and do some of that cow calling that I heard, you're going to have a chance to have elk come in. But I think you have to be patient because a lot of times they're going to come in quiet. And maybe limit your calls. I mean, maybe limit your calls. Either go in with the strategy that we're going to call like crazy and we're just looking for one. Or go with the strategy of we're going to try and find them with our eyeballs, you know, try and glass them up, figure them out. 
and then ease in there where they're coming in and going out of meadows or what have you and put a good play on them. Um, you know, there's, there's the train of thought of just, I'm going to call like crazy and it just takes one. I get that early in the season. I think you can probably make too much chaos, call too much and potentially push elk away because they're like, what's he doing over there? He's bugling like crazy. Fred, what are you doing? We're not this, you know, we're not doing this for two more weeks. Right. You know, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, what's worked well for us in the past. I know it has for you most likely I'm speculating. But we've killed them before where you go in, you make maybe one small young bugle mm-hmm. and maybe hopefully have somebody answer, mm-hmm. then sneak over there and just start softly cow calling. Mm-hmm. Uh, another, but, but this time of year, they, you may not be able to find a bull that will answer you. Yeah. Right? Another tip that I can give you that I think is probably the most underutilized thing is raking a tree. I, I had a feeling you were right. going to say that. Raking a tree because... With the, with the bugle or just raking? Yeah, I mean, I would rake a tree. So what I love to do is if I know where elk are at, I like to try and get as close to them as I can. And if I can get in close and then have a buddy, so we've penetrated in close to the herd, we've got the wind right, and we come in close and we start raking and we don't make any other sound. Just rake. The reason we're going to do that is a bull's going to be sitting over there going, who is this that just snuck into me and my cows and he's raking? Who, you know, and now he's not bugling to let me know who he is. The curiosity factor alone drives him nuts. Really? If you're over there bugling too, sometimes a dominant bull will be like, I'm going to go over and kick his butt. The bugle that I would throw in if I was raking would just be little squeals. Right. I would try and sound like the little pip squeak that's gotten close to the bull, somebody. and he might steal some cows. Most of the time, that bull's going to come over and be like, "Not on my watch, you're not." Right. So, and the other thing is taking a set of antlers, and even if it's a set of deer antlers, and having them and. So, like maybe two young bulls, kind of like like sparring because you've heard them yeah. right so you've seen them sparring and they they make little whines who doesn't want to like dogs see, who know. doesn't want to yeah. see a fight right and i think that's another super underutilized tool of of and especially early season is clanking some antlers together i mean i cannot tell you how many times i've been watching two bulls just sparring and bulls just show up Who's fighting? Oh, okay. So right. so I would throw some of that in to your setups. I wouldn't be afraid to do a little bit of cow calling, maybe some, you know, small bull squeals, and then have one of you kind of doing some raking. And it's simulating, hey, there's stuff going right. on over here. And, you know, it might not be the biggest bull come in, but if you're just trying to kill an elk, it's a great way to kill an elk early. I've also heard that raking a tree with an antler Sounds much better than with a stick. Certainly. If, I mean, then you got to carry an antler, but if you carried like a little four or five point, um, you know, shed. It's not that heavy. It, I mean, yeah. And if you could clank real, I mean, you guys got a bunch of elk antlers around here. You might try it. I'm telling you, if you clank elk, elk antlers in early season, it is money. Hmm. Really? Money. You got to write that down, Dad. Your money. Yeah. No, it's money. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. Oh. What would you like to like just throw out there for these neophytes, if you will, trying to figure it out? 
As far as elk? Yeah. He just gave us some tips. I I think people bugle too much. I think um, I think they should lean more on cow calling. And the reason I think people bugle too much is most people aren't really good at bugling. It doesn't sound quite right, and it's a longer call. Whereas just some nice short cow calls, yeah. Well, how many times have you been out in the woods and you hear someone bugle and you go, that's a hunter? Right. The reason most of the time is, one, it doesn't sound quite right. But two, it's a long call. So you have a long time to listen to it and be like, that's not right. Whereas if you just heard someone go, yeah, yeah, you kind of hear it. And then when you're trying to hear it again, it's not making the call. Right. And you can't go, that's fake. Yeah, it's too quick to analyze. It's too quick to analyze. That's Yeah, it's great. It's too quick to analyze. So, um, and not that bugling doesn't work because it does, but I think people probably bugle too much. Or too long. Too. Or too long. Right. How about this? Let's hear it, if you don't mind. I love that tube. That's a classic tube. perfect i i mean and and even that you could even carry the the high pitch even a little bit longer but i love the fact that you didn't go you know and a lot of people get into this huge growl and stuff at the beginning i like how you went straight kind of high pitch just small bull squeal and ended Perfect. I, I, I think you'll call in plenty of elk if you just do that because that's that's how we normally that's do a it. small yeah. bull, and most of the time that's not going to offend a small bull. He's not, you know, you're not sounding like the biggest bull in the woods. I think people just get these huge growls and this, you know, just sound like a giant bull. Well, if you're if you're trying to just kill a branch antler bull, you don't want to offend or have a Five point go, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. You me. want him to be like, well, I, got it. I got it, this guy. You know, I, you know what's really interesting too, as you mentioned before, is that I've heard bigger bulls say or speak so softly and quietly, like like a small little. Yeah, so that's with no like big tending growls. their cows and herding their cows. If you think of it from their perspective, they've got a few ladies over here and they don't want to draw attention. Right. And a lot of times you'll hear the glunking where it's, I don't know if I can make it yeah. with this bugle, but you know. What the, is that? So that's their their diaphragm. They're going gong, 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 gong. That's them tending their cows saying, I'm the boss, but I don't want to let other bulls know that I've got you, you know, if you had, a, mm. you know a circle of five of the hottest ladies you've ever seen and you have them over here in this room and you're talking to them and everything's going great and your buddies are out there you think you hey guys come over here no you kind of gonna keep these five to yourself yeah, so it's just keep that, it quiet yeah keep it quiet and that's why i think sometimes you hear some of these big bulls and you just hear a little sometimes you'll just hear these little squeals out do you of them. do that often do you clunk it um for any reason that tube that you have is better than this tube um, and the old Primos, yeah, so the old Primos um, tube, so you don't want, 
Right. You want. So if you heard bulls do yeah, that, yeah, 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 for so, sure. Yeah, so that's glunking, yeah, and that is a a very usually you hear it when you're very close to elk. And the other thing is if you can, like, if a bull was bedded over there at seventy yards, I didn't say a word, and he's got cows, and I got up to him and went, he's gonna go bananas, really. So bananas. you do that sometimes, absolutely. Absolutely. I used to think when I first got in the woods and heard it, I always thought it was a sex organ banging the stomach. <laughs> <laughs> we could only be so lucky, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of those things that you can do, raking, glunking, you know, tickling antlers together, gets that curiosity part going. And especially early season, I wouldn't be afraid to try it. Thank you. Well, here's a gift for you. Oh, man. It's my book. That is Passion awesome. Passion for Tarpon, which is uh, um, a methodology that I used uh, for a number of years when I was successfully tarpon fishing. But it's also, I think, more important is the story about the fish. Yeah. It is a story about the fish, and it's also a story about the innovators, all the guys that started the sport back in the 60s and the 70s, and their stories about success and losses. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, just like what we've been speaking about elk right. hunting. And I think you'll enjoy it. Be I really a fisherman and that. a hunter, too. F tarpon fishing is all about hunting. That's awesome. And you signed it here. That's that's amazing. I really appreciate it. It's it's a beautiful book. When I was up here a couple of weeks ago, you know, I got to thumb through it. And, uh, you know, it just speaks volumes for you. You know, A Passion for Tarpon is the title. Um, and it speaks volumes of you of being able to do a book and make it about the fish and um so thank you for that i appreciate it i really appreciate you guys having me up it's, this has been awesome yeah thanks thanks for coming um before we before we leave um tell the listeners where they can find your podcast and can tune into your next adventures and sure uh j scott outdoors western big game hunting and fishing podcast simply you can just search j scott podcast uh, on itunes or anywhere that you can find uh, podcast. Um, I'm on everything. And then probably the best way is um, my Instagram at jscottoutdoors. I love fielding direct messages and, and um, interacting with people. And uh, so Instagram has been an amazing tool to be able to connect with people. And, you know, that's how you and I right. got connected in the first place. Uh, so yeah, J Scott Outdoors podcast and then uh, at J Scott Outdoors on Instagram and um, love to talk hunting and fishing with anybody. And if I can do anything to help you guys or help anybody else, I'll do it for sure. Great. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Jay. Yeah, it's been super fun. Thank Thanks. you very much. You're the best. <laughs> Hey guys, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you'd like to see more content behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook.